So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another event of our uh, of the OTGR seminar series. We are really happy to see you here. Uh, I'm going to take just one, and literally one minute today, because I see that many faces are familiar. And you know, the usual plan is that I make that we are uh, transitional. We are a student-based group dealing with issues of society transitioning from conflicts and widespread violence to peace, democracy, and reconciliation. Um, we are an interdisciplinary group. We try to involve people from all sorts of disciplines, including law, anthropology, sociology, international developments, international relations, and you name it. Uh, we are really happy to have this interdisciplinary character. And uh, in order to promote this, we are really happy to have two special guests from the practical side of this job, more than the research uh, part. But I know that both of them are really involved also in the research studies on this topic. So I'm really eager to hear about this. Um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guests. We have with us today Alex Wilkes and Nisha Iswaran from the UK Government Stabilization Unit. They are both Justice Advisor. Uh, Alex Wilkes has provided, provides advice on issues of stabilization in uh, fragile society, including Ukraine, Nigeria, Somalia, and on issues of modern slavery. Previously, he was the Principal Program Lawyer at the International Bar Association Human Rights Institute. Uh, where he ran various justice and rule of law projects, including in Afghanistan, Bahrain, Libya, Sri Lanka, and Timor-Leste, and with a regional focus on Latin America. Uh, Nisha is also a, security, a stabilization, security, and justice advisor. Uh, she advises uh, across governments on Somalia and the Horn of Africa, and on thematically on security and justice issues. Um, previously, Nisha worked for the Ministry of Defense, for the FCO and DFID, in, in post-conflict and conflict states, including working as a strategic analysis analyst in Afghanistan. And uh, she also contributed to creating the UK stabilization support to Libya. So we're very curious to hear about all these projects that you've been engaging in. Um, and she also worked in the private sector before being an advisor for the UK government and uh, as an intelligence and risk consultant and uh, consulting on uh, conflict-affected environments uh, and advising, among, among others, the UK military and New Zealand Defence Forces. Um, the title of the presentation, as you can see from the slides here, is Transitional Justice and Stabilisation, Risks or Opportunities. Please join me in welcoming our guest today. One word, uh, I'd remind you that the main presentation is recorded, but the Q&A afterwards is not, so feel free to engage. Thank you very much again. I leave the floor to you. Thank you very much, Daniel, uh, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here and really nice to be out of the office on such <laughs> a sunny day. Um, we are going to talk to you um, about uh, transitional justice uh, issues in, in the context of stabilisation. Um, we're obviously not going to be able to cover everything, um, but we thought it would be interesting um, to uh, focus our presentation a bit on um, non-state actors and, and reintegration and some of the issues relating to that, and then also looking at uh, transitional justice in the context of political settlements. Um, then we're going to uh, consider some more practical issues, which might be interesting for you. So what do we think about when we're thinking about programming, um, transitional justice interventions, sequencing issues, long-term versus short-term, um, also some of the uh, challenges that we face in that respect. Um, and then we, we can't promise that we have all of the answers, uh, so we will have a question and answer session afterwards, and so some of you do, then, then that would be great, and you can come and work in the stabilisation unit. Um, but before we start um, our, the main focus of our presentation, you might be wondering um, what, well, firstly, what, what, what the stabilisation unit is, uh, and what actually are we talking about when we're talking about stabilisation. Um, so I will hand over to Nisha to talk to you a little bit more about that. Great, thanks, Alex. Uh, so the stabilisation unit is a centre of expertise within the UK government and we advise on conflict, stabilisation, security and justice matters in fragile and conflict-affected states. 
we're comprised of advisors um, and of a deployment capability so that we can send um, specialists out to fragile states um, and that's supporting the UK and supporting um, EU missions largely as well. Um, we're comprised of civilian advisors like Alex and myself who are recruited either from within and across government kind of on loan into the unit um, or who come in externally. So for example, Alex obviously came in externally from an NGO. We also have serving military um, as advisors within the unit and police. So we're sort of an integrated uh, civil military police unit. We work to advise entirely across the UK government. So with any ministerial departments who are concerned with working in conflict affected states. So that's the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office, Department for International Development, Home Office, National Crime Agency, and um, really sort of across the piece. Um, it's important to say that we are not responsible for policy or for delivery, and that would lie with the ministerial departments themselves. We're a sort of internal consultancy, if you like. So we, as advisors, would advise the, uh, the people who are in charge of um, developing and leading policy um, and of, of implementing programmes. Um, a little statistic is that we have over 100 experts deployed across the world at any one time, and that's comprised of core staff um, within the stabilisation unit, like Alex and myself, or from quite a large pool of consultants that we have um, that we can kind of draw from for particular specialist expertise. So that hopefully explains the stabilisation unit. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about the UK's approach to stabilisation. So um, many different actors will understand different things by stabilisation. The UK has its own definition of stabilisation, um, and that was developed um, by my colleagues in the stabilisation unit. So it's mainly based around the primacy of politics, and we define it as really setting the preconditions for stability. So it's not so much about the end goal of stabilisation, it's really about um, setting the conditions to allow stabilisation. So it's reducing violence um, in the immediate term, trying to restore basic human security and ultimately to facilitate an elite political deal. So the definition for us um, has been based on um, a lot of research, um, researching kind of across geographical remits to look at kind of success factors and challenges um, in a number of different uh, conflict affected states and how they have been stabilised and brought out of conflict. And for that, it really focuses sort of quite realistically on the importance of an elite political deal. So to be clear, it, it doesn't include sort of development angles of you know, state building or peace building and it's also not um, kind of focused on counterinsurgency which certainly um, historically and throughout the sort of Afghanistan main effort period um, it was seen as we're now really focusing in on that um, enabling political deal and kind of immediate security needs. So this does bring into play a sort of short-term versus long-term trade-off. Um, it's really about the, sh the short-term needs for stability, but with a consideration of setting the conditions for long-term development and long-term stabilisation. So with that in mind as well. But it does bring into play a lot of trade-offs, which Alex and I will talk more through um, in detail over the next few minutes. It's also important to mention the National Security Council. So this is a cabinet-level ministerial committee led by the Prime Minister that discusses national security, defence, intelligence um, and foreign policy matters. It meets weekly to discuss country and thematic issues and it kind of sets the strategic priority direction um, for our work on fragile and conflict-affected countries. Um, so as civil servants, we'll go away and try and implement that. Um, and our role in the stabilisation unit is to kind of advise on how that can best be implemented. As such, the National Security Council has oversight of the stabilisation unit um, and of the main funding mechanism for conflict and stabilisation work, which is the Conflict Stability and Security Fund. I'll also mention the Chilcot report, the Iraq inquiry, which hopefully most of you have heard of, um, that obviously focused around the UK operation in Iraq and the need for early stabilisation thinking um, and you know, did criticise um, some of the actions that didn't have that kind of longer term thinking. Um, you know, it's, it's really important that we take account of those recommendations in the UK government now, and it's something that we, particularly in the stabilisation unit, um, will remind our colleagues of. I mean, two of the 
the main um, points to take away for us from the Chilcot report in regards to stabilisation is the the need for a long-term and comprehensive focus, um, so not just thinking about immediate security needs, um, and also the fact that um, plans should really be based on contextual factors, and that contextual understanding is really important. Uh, and it also outlined the need for stabilisation expertise from that very early planning phase, not just to be sort of thought of later. So under that definition, we would see transitional justice sort of overlapping on the the definition of stabilisation, sort of pre-deal phase as a consideration, um, but also in the implementation, so the sort of post-deal peace-building phase. And I'll hand over to Alex to talk a bit more about that. Yeah, so just to sort of frame the transitional justice agenda a bit more sort of within that stabilisation context, I mean, what they have in common um, is a sort of the bottom line indicator of success of any transitional justice or stabilisation programme is the prevention of future conflict. Um, now, if you look around the world, um, the evidence base of, of what works is, 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 is quite daunting. Um, half of the world's current conflicts have lasted for more than 20 years, um, and an estimated 40% of all armed conflicts reoccur within 10 years of ending, so there are a lot of uh, challenges out there. Um, the UK is engaged more than ever in, in stabilisation and peace building um, uh, efforts um, in some really complex uh, protracted conflicts and uh, DFID, um, Department for International Development, um, spends 50% uh, of its budget um, in fragile and conflict affected states. So there's, there's a huge UK investment in this area um, and a lot of these situations, are, they're, they're characterised by a heavy legacy of past abuses, such as Iraq and, and Somalia, for example, um, but also continued atrocities committed by uh, both state um, and non-state violent extremist groups, which pose some quite particular transitional justice challenges. Now, within the UK government, um, we have various departments that uh, deal with transitional justice-related uh, issues. Um, I did a sort of brief mapping at the beginning of the year and it's over 13 departments between the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development that actually touch on transitional justice, um, which raises issues about coordination that I'll sort of talk um, a little bit more about later. Um, but um, technically, until very recently, um, the, it was the war crimes team in the Foreign Office that held policy for transitional justice, which I think sort of gives a bit of an indication of a sort of tendency or a focus towards judicial mechanisms. Um, but then also, on the other hand, you have um, the Department for International Development's Building Stability Framework, which explicitly refers to transitional justice as a longer-term means of um, helping to prevent future conflict. Um, now, as Nisha said, a, a key area of focus um, for us is, is the need to increase the political space and build the confidence required uh, for the negotiation and eventual establishment of an enduring political settlement. Um, so in that context, transitional justice needs to deal with really messy internal political dynamics um, between bargaining elites um, and quite often the absence of a coherent process, um, balancing on the one hand um, need uh, calls for accountability um, with the reality of what is actually feasible politically. There's going to be pushback or instrumentalization of the transitional justice agenda by elites. Uh, and even if the political will exists, um, a real challenge in post-conflict or uh, fragile states is to develop operational mechanisms that don't actually face the same governance or rule of law issues that contributed to the conflicts in the first place. Um, so a lot of political emphasis is uh, placed on transitional justice mechanisms, but politics and delivery um, place them in a situation where it's very difficult to meet high public expectations. So a key question that we really are faced with is how do we deal with the difficult questions and inevitable trade-offs, so for example, amnesties versus prosecutions, and manage expectations, yet still develop credible and realistic mechanisms that support both short-term stabilisation and longer-term uh, peace-building efforts. So does a settlement between elites that provide stability 
but then perhaps entrenches inequality or exclusion, you know, what, what are the implications that that's going to have on stability in the long term? Or going from the other angle, to what extent does pursuing a good governance or reform or transitional justice agenda actually threaten the basis of a political settlement and risk a return to violence or instability. Um, so a lot of this is about thinking about sequencing, um, and there are going to be some very short-term decisions over dealing with non-state armed groups or the accountability of security structures um, in order to preserve stability um, or secure longer-term political out outcomes. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Nisha to talk to you a little bit about that. So just looking at, at reintegration um, and, and non-state actors particularly, in many of the, the fragile and conflict-affected states that we work in, immediate causes of insecurity are due to insurgent groups or militias. You know, we're often these days looking at asymmetric conflicts. The UK government needs a, a legitimate actor to work through, um, and that can create some real challenges in communicating with certain groups. So, for example... Um, Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab are designated terrorist organisations and there are laws and politics and policies around that um, that mean that as a political actor um, that consideration really needs to be taken and it, it does create that, that barrier. Um, militias particularly are, although it's a word with certain connotations, they're not always the enemy, um, but we would still need legitimacy before any support could be provided. So we wouldn't want to undermine a political deal that we're trying to enable with those political elites um, by sort of siphoning support um, off to a side. We want to work through and, and strengthen that system. So that would mean a kind of alignment for those militias with these political actors which are now gaining some kind of formalisation. So some considerations within that, obviously that militias will have been part of and taken part uh, in the violent conflict, which means there will be local conflict dynamics at play. In many of the countries that we look at, there are different levels of conflict. There's not certainly you know, one versus the other. So in Libya in 2012, in the post-conflict um, immediate situation, there were a number of militias who had been fighting Gaddafi's forces and then they were still left and actually quite fragmented. And we've seen some of the, um, the fallout from that more recently. Um, in Syria, obviously, it's a multi-layered conflict. There are many different groups at play. Um, in Somalia, we tend to focus on al-Shabaab, um, but actually the root cause of the conflict is, is clan-based, um, quite localised um, fighting, and, and that's really the situation which enabled al-Shabaab to take hold. So it means that when you're working or looking at working with these different militias, there can be you know, grievances from local communities who feel they had crimes committed against them from these militias, um, and alignment or support for any of these groups with your formal system, who will be you know, known for having support from international actors, could look like we're taking sides and can particularly fuel grievances and play into an insurgent group's narrative. Kind of adding to this challenge is that there's often um, no or very little accountability mechanisms or justice systems. Um, so when you're kind of working with security forces and for a, an immediate security need or stabilisation need, you want to align them and um, perhaps kind of give them some legitimacy or even look at capacity building. You know, there's no accountability for those forces in the way that they've been operating. So again, there's a real challenge there with the ability to inadvertently almost fuel conflicts um, depending on the behaviour of those security forces, which is an important consideration to make. Um, so some of that just describes the sort of trade-off between trying to reduce those, that immediate violence and creating uh, basic security and human rights. And we can look at the definition of stabilisation in terms of trying to create the conditions for longer-term development um, of governments and of civil society and of accountability mechanisms, but it does mean that in the short term there are those trade-offs to be made. It's also an important consideration to think about how human rights abuses can also fuel conflict, so even with your kind of immediate needs, um, it's an important factor. So I think I'd say that it's just really important when you're going into these situations to try and understand as best as you can who it is that you're working with. If you're looking at certain militia groupings, who are they? And also, equally, you know, who, who are we not working with? Um, and what does that picture look like? Uh, moving on to insurgent groups um, and reintegration of defectors. So we could look at this as, as sort of degrading those insurgent groups through nonviolent means. 
we can separate out thinking into during conflict versus sort of post-conflict, so whether it's enticement of individual defectors um, or a sort of en masse uh, reintegration of a group that would be related to a peace deal. For both, it requires an upfront legal and policy framework that has really taken account of comprehensive factors. So what could that look like? Well, you know, amnesty is often talked about um, and is a kind of familiar word uh, to, to many people, um, but it really needs to be thought through. You know, what's really realistically what, what can be offered? Is it amnesty, which would have to have um, conditions around it, or, or would it simply just be an offer of reintegration into society? You know, what, what can be realistically included? What are the broader considerations that you need to think about? Um, so, for example, where can defectors safely live, where they won't be persecuted by the former insurgent group they're a member of, or by security forces within the country? Um, you know, that comprehensive understanding of amnesty and what isn't, isn't included is really important. At livelihoods, you know, a key driver um, for joining an insurgent group can just be economic means. Um, and they can provide immediate money. So what would prevent them to take up that option again? Transitional justice, which we'll obviously talk about in a bit more detail. What are the rehabilitation needs? What are the psychosocial needs? Um, you know, what are some of the traumas that they might have been through? And then longer-term sustainability of the reintegration. And research has found that this is really dependent on social reintegration. Um, it's not just about jobs or money. In a lot of the countries that we're working in, employment isn't meritocratic you know it's based on tribal clan affiliations or familial links um, so that social integration you know genuine integration back into family or into a community can really enable um, the other broader aspects of reintegration there's also been examples of programs which have worked with communities to try and incentivize welcoming in defectors um, but it has been shown that as soon as that support has been removed from the program the reintegration is really at risk so the social reintegration factor um, is definitely kind of crucial um, for, for genuine reintegration and the sustainability of it. Um, another key consideration is, is how the rules will be enforced around the reintegration offer, um, or particularly for an amnesty offer. Um, what do you do if a, if a defector rejoins or reoffends? In a lot of the countries that we work in, there's very little in the way of rule of law. There's very little functioning policing um, or any processes around that or justice systems. And what you don't want is for it to look like defectors through this offer of reintegration. And, you know, often in, in national sort of um, DDR, uh, disarmament, demobilisation, reintegration programmes, you know, money can be a factor. And you don't want it to look like defectors are getting more opportunities um, than those who, who never joined in the first place. So all of this needs to be considered when developing um, a policy at that planning stage comprehensively what can you realistically implement particularly when there is a lack of any kind of formal systems um, and a formal rule of law uh, because the ability to actually you know, realistically um, implement and for uh, defectors to, to not reoffend um, and not be penalised for that is, is a really important um, consideration for this. So the low capacity that you will often get um, in host country governments it does create a real challenge. Uh, we often work on the basis of host country lead, um, but by the very definition of a fragile state, they don't have the capacity to plan or lead. Um, in, for example, in southern Afghanistan um, and in Somalia, even politicians and officials can't access large parts of the country. You know, in Helmand, in the very north and the very south, it was extremely difficult for anybody um, whether internationals or sort of um, elites to really access those parts of the country. Um, in Somalia, we now have a sort of Mogadishu bubble, but to get around south-central Somalia um, puts, puts those elites at really high risk. Um, so to actually gauge community needs itself um, can be very difficult to try and um, develop that picture. Uh, ministries um, in host countries often have very low numbers of staff. You'll find ministers who are carrying out administrative tasks. Um, they don't have desks, they don't have computers. Um, there's very little money sort of flowing through from a ministry of finance to other government departments, particularly absence of a political deal. Um, so to be able to kind of pay for any of the resources that will be needed and to get that capacity up and running uh, can, can be very difficult in the immediate term. And that's why you know, we would obviously say that, that the political deal is so important. 
because it will help to enable that power and resource sharing agreement um, that then means that kind of budgeting and financial flows can, can fall out of that. We would say that, that reintegration should not be externally developed. Um, it needs to be uh, localised as a solution and it needs to um, have you know, community input to it as well um, to, to manage a lot of the, the human rights and the conflict sensitivity risks to understand community needs. Um, so, you know, as an external actor, we can, we can support a host country government to develop some of that planning and thinking, but it's not something that, that we would want to externally impose, which obviously means that, that a lot of patience can be needed, that it can be looked at as, as quite a, a long-term aim, um, but yet something that um, needs to be thought about in the immediate term as well. So just um, a couple of points around working with non-state actors as a, as a political actor and as a bilateral. Um, I think one of the, the main um, uh, considerations for this is really uh, legitimacy as an external actor. So, for example, you know, Sierra Leone, where we were, you know, obviously a, an external political actor, but did have some legitimacy in terms of the kind of historical context and understanding um, of, of how particularly security systems in Sierra Leone worked, um, but also as actually the sort of main donor. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about donor coordination in a few minutes, um, but the UK, um, particularly on the security front, was the by far the, the largest donor, and internationally that was sort of agreed um, and, and was kept to. Um, similarly with, with sort of Northern Ireland, where we had an obvious um, imperative and an obvious kind of involvement, um, versus sort of uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, um, where we would be seen um, as an external actor. There are many other donors at play, and you could look at uh, potentially sort of regional actors um, having um, more understanding of that, of that local context. Um, so I think those are particularly important um, to think about when you can acknowledge that we are a kind of external and a political actor with some of our own imperatives as well. Now I'll hand over to Alex to talk a bit more about political settlements and accountability. Yeah, great. Thanks, Nisha. So, um, so briefly, just to talk about some of the, so what we need to think about when we're um, thinking about uh, incorporating sort of transitional components or mechanisms into political settlements. Um, firstly, um, well, the Stabilisation Unit has just conducted a, a, a big piece of research looking at over 20 uh, peace agreements uh, from all over the world, um, sort of trying to draw out some of the, uh, the main lessons uh, from them. Um, and one of the conclusions or one of the findings uh, that sort of chimes in with a growing body of evidence uh, suggests that for countries at war, reducing levels of armed conflict involves elite bargaining um, aimed at addressing the underlying security dilemmas and building confidence in a negotiated settlement. Um, obviously, by elite, we're talking about a range of uh, actors and power brokers um, within a particular context um, and obviously power may or may not be located within the formal uh, state structures. Um, so we're talking about quite a broad constellation of um, actors that need to be aligned in order to achieve um, a, uh, an elite bargain or a political settlement. Um, however, the main tension, uh, one of the main tensions when you uh, come to the uh, transitional justice agenda um, is that very central to transitional justice are the notions of transparency and accountability. Um, now, that implies a movement away from what has been a uh, deals-based uh, to a rules-based mechanism, um, which actually goes against the logic of a lot of this um, elite bargaining um, that, 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 that needs to take place. And then when transitional justice enters the political marketplace, um, it becomes an agenda that's fought over um, and instrumentalised uh, by elites um, and also undercut by other spheres of engagement and other sets of priorities. I think if you look at you know, any, any political settlements or negotiations, transitional justice is just one of many different priorities. Um, and then 
you have talking about legitimacy, you have the international community, you have um, the UN and ICRC are always very heavily invested in transitional justice debate, sometimes behind the scenes. You have governments, you have civil society um, organisations um, that are all uh, very heavily involved in approaches to transitional justice and can really um, play uh, quite an important uh, or influence uh, the process quite significantly. Um, now, in many of the recent cases where there hasn't been a formal peace agreement um, or an agreement that, that, that has not been able to put an end to a large-scale conflict, um, there has been limited referral to transitional justice mechanisms. So in the cases of Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan, for example, where Mujahideen factions uh, aligned with the Northern Alliance strongly resisted any mention of transitional justice um, in the Bonn Agreement. Um, and even 10 years ago, um, there was a, uh, a, a quite a famous uh, public address by Karzai on, on, on uh, Afghan television, where he is very emotional speech, saying that they were now ready to uh, confront the crimes of the past. Um, the day after, Human Rights Watch released its report uh, called "Blood on Their Hands," which were sort of naming all of the uh, um, actors that it considered. Uh, responsible for war crimes and and actually what that did is that it completely blew the transitional justice agenda out of the water and so far as sort of engagement between the national and sort of international community are concerned so transitional justice really um, has, has, has has never really figured uh, properly within the domestic political agenda in Afghanistan and there are a, a range of reasons for that um, in other cases where there have been peace agreements where there have been, there's been a significant reduction of large-scale armed conflict, so Colombia, Guatemala, Nepal, um, transitional justice conditions were incorporated into almost all of the agreements, but the implementation um, is very, very much varied, um, and that's something that I'd like to um, look at briefly. Um, just taking some um, examples, so Guatemala, um, we had uh, uh, peace accords were signed in 1996. There was very specific wording on transitional justice. Um, in 1999, you had the Historical Clarification Commission that, that, that found that 250,000 people had um, uh, uh, died um, as a result of the genocide. Um, and it wasn't until about 17 years later that Rios Montt actually came up to... Um, to uh, face charges of uh, genocide, uh, and that took place against a real sort of backdrop of elite resistance and also very high levels of uh, embedded violence within Guatemala. It's, it's quite interesting to note that actually sort of post-conflict, um, Guatemala has a higher homicide rate um, than uh, uh, previous to the, uh, to, the, to the genocide, to the conflict. Um, and that reflects, I think, the complexity and the drawn-out nature uh, um, of transitional justice processes um, and, and also shows how they are to a large extent a, um, a reflection of shifting constellations of power within the domestic political settlement um, and also a result of international pressure. Colombia, um, I think we're all wanting to wait and see with that. It's obviously it's a very interesting process. You've got a very highly developed, sophisticated transitional justice uh, mechanism. Um, is it too complicated? Is it too bureaucratic um, in terms of you know its ability to be implemented on the ground? Um, we're going to have to wait and see. We do have some sympathy, I think, for the Colombian government because. You know, this is what the international community were asking for. So, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to wait and see whether it is actually uh, sort of practical and realistic within what is an incredibly messy and difficult um, domestic political environment. Um, Sri Lanka is a quite an interesting example of the kind of things or the points um, that need to be. Uh, taken into uh, account. Um, 
and where things can go wrong. Um, so we had credible evidence of war crimes was found by the UN. Um, there was no appetite under the Rajapaksa regime for any kind of uh, accountability. There were no domestic political uh, champions. Um, some uh, uh, very token attempts at transitional justice were set up. You had the Lessons Learned and Reconciliation Commission, which basically didn't really have any teeth. Um, and actually, the uh, Rajapaksa uh, administration were pursuing uh, what was a very nationalist similar um, agenda. So they're actually using this as an opportunity to sort of consolidate um, similar um, influence within uh, within Sri Lanka. Now, that appeared to radically change when there was a shock election defeat uh, and Sirisena Senna um, came into power with a very ambitious 100-day program um, for reform, uh, including transitional justice. And a high point of that was a public commitment at the UN Human Rights Council um, that Sri Lanka was committed to an expansive transitional justice process. That was just last year. Um, and you had a really inclusive domestic political settlement as well. So, you know, on, in, in theory, we've got quite a lot of ingredients there for to sort of push forward a, um, a transitional justice um, uh, process. Um, however, it's really become a prisoner of uh, political bargaining within the coalition. Um, the, uh, it's become instrumentalised to advance sets of interests that really don't have much to do with transitional justice. So, um, yes, obviously we've got um, a, um, a large uh, a Tamil uh, um, component within the, uh, within the domestic political settlement, which is obviously very positive. Um, however, um, that's been the transitional justice's agenda has actually been seen as a, a way of getting a new political settlement and to leave it in international support. Um, on the other hand, you have the nationalists um, who are using the transitional justice as a convenient foil um, and um, using it to mobilise similar uh, um, supporters against what they uh, frame as being a neo-colonial agenda. Um, and then you have the international community, on the other hand, that is very cautious, um, particularly um, the UK, for example, um, Nisha mentioned the um, Sierra Leone and the UK's involvement of that, um, and in terms of sort of capacity building and security sector reform on the transitional justice agenda. On the other hand, there are obvious sensitivities um, with the UK getting involved uh, strongly within a transitional justice agenda um, in Sri Lanka because of that colonial uh, legacy. Um, but generally, the international community are cautious of pushing too hard for fear of bringing down or undermining the political settlement and paving the way for a return to um, the Rajapaksa regime. Um, so um, transitional justice, I think what we've, been, what we've seen is that it's a useful tool to uh, pursue other goals and vested interests um, that have sort of developed around the agenda and, and keeping it in a, in a state of um, constant deferral um, in the Sri Lankan uh, context. So the dynamics of bargaining around transitional justice um, appear to be shaped by two factors. Uh, the first one is the nature of the domestic political settlement and the extent to which the old guard has been displaced or remains in power. And the second is the level of internationalisation and the degree of leverage of international actors. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and generally, it's... Um, quite a broad statement, but where there's high internationalisation, there's more of a push for retributive uh, or harder forms of justice, uh, and where the old guard remains powerful, there are stronger incentives for amnesties and uh, softer power. Um, where transitional justice is components have been written into political agreements, it frequently creates pressures for further internationalisation. Um, domestic elites try and water down those measures and civil society organisations call for greater external pressure for enforcement. So 
on the one hand, transitional justice can provide a narrative that is, um, it can be empowering and a tool to build inclusion over a period of time. Um, and I think uh, Guatemala um, is an example of that, South Africa, possibly Colombia. Um, or it can be used as a foil for national elites to mobilize against, uh, such as Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, um, and we will see um, what happens in Syria. Now, what does this mean for uh, sort of programming and the practical side of things? Well, firstly, it raises a lot of challenges with respect to sequencing um, your short-term versus long-term interventions. Um, as I mentioned before, you are um, talking about a shift from a deals-based to a rules-based system. So any, um, any, any kind of reform agenda has to be very um, incremental and it cannot be rushed within a certain period of time. There's an assumption amongst policymakers that in the aftermath of a conflict that this is a window opportunity to pursue an ambitious reform agenda. Um, but, you know, we know from experience that these things take place over time. Um, in terms of how do we coordinate what we actually want to see um, and what is um, what the national actors want to see is, um, a, in terms of transitional justice, is an extremely um, challenging um, aspect. So looking at uh, Daesh accountability, uh, for example, you've had the recent um, passing of the UN resolution um, calling for accountability. Um, I think one set of challenges is actually how, how is that going to happen um, is uh, something that perhaps we can um, talk about afterwards. But, you know, how does that sequence in with longer-term reconciliation uh, initiatives and community-based initiatives um, and trying to sort of coordinate or sequence those, 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 those kinds of activities is really going to be challenging because it will raise some, uh, could potentially raise some longer-term stability um, issues. Um, the trade-offs, um, there may well be, so for example, um, Nisha and I have just come back from Somalia, um, where you're looking at the informal justice system as probably your best way, best bet um, in maintaining community cohesion and stability. This is a culturally accepted way, and it's been happening like that for hundreds of years. There's no central state structure and certainly no formal justice system that is capable of delivering that kind of justice and security. However, um, the trade-off will be that there are gender prejudicial norms um, within the informal justice system. So how do we deal with that in terms of our interventions? Do we, do, do, do we, do we support the um, informal justice system and then build in over a longer term more development type approaches in terms of trying to raise awareness um, of, um, of gender issues? Um, similarly, can pursuing a, um, a radical uh, reform or accountability agenda be more destabilizing in the long term? You're not really going to get with elites, uh, get rid of elites, um, certainly in the uh, short term. Uh, looking at Ukraine, which is a different kind of conflict, but a lot was generated um, by sort of public dissatisfaction at sort of corruption and the direction the country um, was going in. Um, you're not going to get rid of the oligarchs, even though there's a lot of impatience, um, you know, particularly from a very dynamic civil society around corruption and around accountability agendas. Um, a lot of them are very, very heavily invested in um, the um, Ukraine's economy, um, so it could potentially be more destabilising de to pursue a, a, an aggressive accountability agenda in the short term. However, that's not, of course, to say that 
having high value prosecutions won't have um, a deterrent effect, but really it's about thinking about a more medium term strategy, about boxing, um, creating a rules based system and boxing um, those actors within that system and thereby reducing the opportunities and incentives in the medium term in a way that you can also keep the political space open um, for a younger generation um, to um, to come um, into play. Um, and thinking about the long term as well, um, we were discussing um, earlier upstairs, um, Latin America is, um, in terms of prosecutions and accountability for um, crimes of the past, um, has demonstrated uh, quite some success. Um, we've got Rios Mont, but we've also got the um, uh, we've got the prosecutions uh, in uh, in Argentina and Chile. In Argentina, you've got a lot of democratic and economic reforms. However, um, incredibly high levels of violence uh, within the criminal justice system, and also in the way that policing happens. And in many ways, that could also be viewed as a transitional justice issue because while you've had a lot of uh, progress economically and democratically in terms of how um, policing works and how prisons are managed, actually that hasn't really been reformed since the days of the dictatorship. So it's actually very much still suffering from that. So that's also something in terms of how long term do you want your sort of transitional justice approach to be. Um, it really goes into the area of institutional reform, which as we know is almost a generational uh, kind of time frame which will raise issues in terms of programming, which Nisha will talk a little bit um, about. Um, just to briefly um, touch on the coordination point, uh, firstly, internally, um, as I mentioned before, we've got the Foreign Office, um, which has a tendency towards uh, judicial mechanisms for accountability, the, the fact that the that transitional justice uh, was sort of owned by the war crimes team, I think it was in, indicative of that. That's changed very recently um, and it's, it's going to be moving within the Human Rights Department of the Foreign Office. Um, and then you have um, DFID uh, that uh, adopts a much longer-term developmental approach to uh, transitional justice. So, um, you know, those, those uh, two approaches um, can sometimes need uh, coordination, and that, to a large extent, is our job as advisors in the stabilisation unit to ensure that cross-governmental sort of integrated approach to uh, certain issues. Um, and then also we will have issues of coordination within the international community as well. It's a perennial problem. Any of you who, uh, I'm sure through your research or have spent any time in the field, know that it is really, really difficult to get, um, you've got uh, competing political agendas, um, you've got competing priorities, um, and so just ensuring sort of that the international community are joined up um, in firstly in how they're going to approach a particular transitional justice um, point um, or agenda is, um, is something that is a real challenge. Um, there are also um, other uh, issues relating to uh, how funding and programming works, uh, which I will let Nisha talk a bit more about. Yes, yeah, so some of the, the practicalities around programming, uh, a particular aspect is funding and how funding works. Um, so it will mirror the kind of annual budgeting process that the whole of the UK government undergoes. Um, and for that reason, although now you can get multi-year programme approvals funding is still approved on an annual basis. Um, so, you know, that, that can mean some uncertainty for programmes, but it's something that, you know, in terms of budgeting and, and government finances, it's difficult really to ever totally get away from. You know, you're, you're balancing a financial spreadsheet across the whole of government. Um, but I think having multi-year programme approvals at least does try and look at programming as something long-term. So you can plan a programme for something over four or five years, not just having to look at a, a start and stop over a year. Um, that also means that there's, there's regular reporting, um, you know, for, for good reason, and that it's public money. It needs to be reported on how it's being used and that it's being used properly. 
But within that reporting, uh, that means that there's also an expectation to report on effects, um, on change, on, um, on outcomes um, from, from some of the activities that are being delivered. And obviously there, there's always a sort of um, long-term aspect to the amount of time that it can create to really um, have the effects of change uh, that we're ultimately wanting to see in terms of stabilisation in country but then also those sort of reporting timeframes and the fact that you're working on kind of annual budgets um, and particularly you know, reporting back to those senior decision makers within government who understandably have to look at things within certain sort of timeframes and are balancing off many different budgets, which can create a challenge. But I think the most important thing within that is to try and um, gather as much evidence as possible to kind of present a case for decision makers um, that helps them to understand the context in which we're uh, operating and you know, what's realistically achievable in what time frame and to try and keep the focus um, on the long term. So linked to that is obviously the need for, for monitoring and research to provide some of that evidence. A particular challenge with that in fragile states is access, um, which I talked a bit about earlier. Um, often we will work through international research organisations who have a base in, uh, in the country in question, and who will often work through and capacity build local um, organisations within the country so they can try and get down to that local level. Um, some good monitoring techniques exist, you know, telephone interviews, um, etc., to try and overcome some of the access challenges, but I think it's just really important to to be aware of the limitations and um, there's always going to be some limitations in the, the kind of information you can gather and the, and the picture that you can um, develop for example you know particularly in some countries that we work in um, reaching out and being able to, to um, understand the needs and uh, perspectives of, of women and minority groups can be particularly difficult you know in some countries if you want to speak to a woman there has to be a man present um, with minority groups there has to be a, a community leader there um, who will be from one of the minor uh, majority uh, tribes or clans and that means that um, you know you know you're going to have kind of limited evidence um, given to you and it's just important to be aware of where where those gaps might exist um, and then finally, around actually trying to assess strategic level impact, um, it's always going to be very difficult at that very high level um, to be able to really measure attribution to your programme um, and, and to really look at a strategic change uh, within, a, within a country um, or even a, a kind of local area. Qualitative indicators of change can help. They're really important. Uh, community perceptions, uh, you know, perceptions of their own security, perceptions of security forces, et cetera, um, can, can really help to kind of at least build the picture of the context um, and make sure that the, the programme is operating correctly within that. Um, but again, it's just a question of trying to get as much information, as much evidence as possible and really also to ensure that the policy and programmes can be flexible, that they can respond to what the evidence is, um, is telling us, um, and that they can you know, build that in, feed that in, um, and, uh, and adapt to what will probably be a quite a changing context anyway, as well as the, the actual programme delivery. So I think that's it from us yep. um, presenting to you. Thank you very much for listening, and we'd be very happy to answer any questions that you might have.